Three, two, one, and we're back. It's Sunday, March the 7th. Oh my gosh, I can't believe my birthday's in two days. Yeah, I, I know. As I looked at the calendar <laughs> on my uh, iMac, I just realized it's in two days. I've completely, basically forgotten about it. I don't think, uh, though I truthfully think, like people sometimes as they um, are our age, or I should say my age, because you're- Especially your age. Because you've decided you're officially 35. That's right. Okay, good. I'll, I'll go I tried that. that out on somebody the other night, too. Yeah, well, and, and they Totally did. believable. You look 35. Which I appreciate. Well, yes. you do. With you makeup really on anyway, but yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, but I'm not saying, uh, who cares about how I look, frankly? I mean, I'm not really concerned whether well. I look my age or not. That doesn't really enter into my mind. But the bottom line is, is that it is kind of funny that sometimes people will bemoan growing older. And I, the first thought that pops into my mind every time I see even men or women not wanting to share their age, I'm like, dude, it is so much better than the alternative, right? It I is. Mean, another birthday is, is a reason to celebrate because it's better than, you know, not having another birthday to celebrate. So Indeed. from my perspective, I appreciate the... Uh, you know, I appreciate all the happy birthdays that I know are coming our way. Last year, you and I had like over a thousand between Facebook awesome. and Instagram. Yeah. You liked all that? Oh, I, you know, I think it's nice. I, I like to celebrate their birthdays and it's just all, you know, it's fun. Did you show gratitude to of all course. the people? Well, maybe not all, you know, I know. or many. I got As much as possible, you know, a few group thank yous. But I found something interesting because I was trying that I met a new friend and, uh, I tried. Zoe, Zoe has been convinced that I'm 35, and I found that to her, <laughs> 35 and you know my actual age, all equal. Oh my gosh, how can you be that old to her? Well, she's seven. It doesn't matter. I could say 20, and she'd think that was super old. <gasps> we forgot our disclaimer. Oh, sorry. We Sunday show. It's a Sunday show. We're going to talk about whatever the hell we want to talk about. Apparently. Got, yeah, apparently. And we're going to talk about whatever comes to our mind. So this is yeah, it's funny. We forgot to disclaim it. So this is the Sunday podcast. This is this is Real Estate Coaching Radio. This is Tim and Julie Harris. Uh, but on Sunday, Julie and I intentionally have, um, well, for, the, for years, we've been married for 30 years this year. Uh-oh. Someone could do some quick math and figure mm -hmm. out how old you are now. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we may have gotten married when Julie was 20, for those of you who are quick at math. Yeah. In any event, moving the, along, moving along <laughs> the, um, uh, the point of the Sunday podcast is it's us taking what we've been doing on Sunday for the past basically 30 years consistently where we defrag from the previous week. And then we look forward to what we're going to accomplish the following week. And what Julie and I will typically do is we'll ask our, you know, we'll ask each other, what are the three to five things that you're going to accomplish this week that you're going to be, you know, most proud of having accomplished in the next seven days? Um, and yeah, that's how we've benchmarked our um, our accountability towards each other for the last thirty years. We've done that very consistently as well. And what the way Julie and I set our goals, or we set our short-term goals, is that we focus on the things that are going to have the most impact. Now, sometimes you get sucked into the vortex of you know, uh, basically you know, servicing your business and such like uh, and such like that. But for the most part, we always are trying to keep ourselves focused on the you know our five-foot world. That's the those are the practical, opportunistic things that are immediately surrounding us, like. You know, I've got scheduled to a whole bunch of Zoom meetings this week and just different podcasts and whatnot, and Julie, the same thing. But we're don't allow those immediate five foot world uh, things to take us off the horizon. Um, so when we're when we're holding each other accountable to the you know the three to five things we're going to do the uh, next week, the following week, that those are the questions like, what is it that you're working towards? What are the three to five things that are going to be horizon and five foot world type goals? And um, that works for us, and maybe it'll work for you as well. It's a great way to always remember people, remind people rather to stay opportunistic, stay short term focused. That way you have money that's coming in. 
and not letting things get by you. Because if you're focused too long range, you're not going to be, obviously your mind's going to focus down range by you know, 90 days, 120 days, two years, five years, um, and you're going to lose what's right in front of you. So it's, it's a balance, but you can figure it out because um, at the end of the day, when you do allow your mind to focus on just three to five most important things, they're going to you know, move the needle for you the most and you know, make money for you the most, uh, put you in a position to help the most people. Those types of questions will really tune in your your uh, your mind to really where your focus should be. Does that make sense? It does make sense. And, you know, we talk about how to marry all of those thoughts together. And we talk about things like doing a little brain dump at night, writing yep. down all the stuff that's flooding around in your brain that doesn't have to be congruent. Maybe one thing is personal and the next thing is business. And the right. next thing is change the oil in your car, you know. <laughs> so that way you at least do the brain dump. You get it out of your head. And then the next thing you do is you go through that list and you decide what is mission critical and what's not. Well, how do you decide? Business-wise, is it dollar productive? Is it going to lead to profitability? Yes or no? Maybe it doesn't need to be done. There will be some things on your brain dump list that you simply cross out as unimportant, other things that are delegatable to somebody else and not dependent on you, and then you'll end up with your three to five things. Let's tell them how we organize that. Mm-hmm. Julie and I have a dry erase board. Big surprise for those of you guys who have known us <laughs> for decades. We yep. love our dry erase boards, and I'm looking at it right now. Julie just turned around to look at it. She's mm-hmm. reminding herself of the things that are on her to-do Turning list. Turning my back on it on Sunday. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Walk <right>. away. <laughs> well, I, we don't need to read them. What's on our, <laughs> no. But what's on our dry erase board are all the really short-term and long-term type projects. And then Julie and I split the specific activities based on our um, really our roles in our companies um, and our skill sets, really. And some of them, as Julie said, are personal and some of them are business. I mean, I'm looking at it right now and most of them are business, but there's some personal stuff on there as well. Yeah. Julie, generally speaking, will uh, square away the personal stuff. And then what we do every single week is we take maybe, it depends, these are all mostly big, long, um, downrange projects, um, but we'll take um, maybe one or two of those big, long-range pro- uh, projects and we'll try to knock it out that particular week. And that's the way we do it. Um, you know, again, I'm looking at this list, reminding myself if I've forgotten about anything and I have not, everything's on task. And so then in front of me, what I'll do at the end of the day, what Julie said is I'll just do a brain dump. Anything that came up that day, um, and I'll write things down throughout the day that come up. And then at the end of the day, I'll scratch, mostly it's removing things from that made the list during the day because it turns out they weren't important. They may have, I may have thought they were important at the time, but they're not important. And the things that remain are my short-term practical tactical things, and those stay on my short list, which is on a yellow legal pad. So downrange items and some short-range items, but mostly long-range items are in the dry erase board. Julie and I split those tasks. And short range items stay on my yellow pad. Now, Julie and I have also in our coaching company and our other companies, we have staff. We have property managers in our management business. We have people that work with us on the lending side. We have people that work with us on the, um, obviously, in the coaching company. The coaching company has the largest staff. So we have then people that, if, for example, if there's some you know banking or accounting or procedural thing that needs nailed down, we're going to have Tom take care of that because that's his area specialty. If it's a marketing thing that needs done, something that's a real high-level creative designer type thing, we have Trevor that will take care of that. And then on down the road with other uh, staff members. But primarily where we've always um, – how we've always kept um, each other accountable, frankly – is by doing exactly what we just said. And the other thing that's the mixed blessing of really doing a Sunday defrag like we are doing now and also uh, the the way we organize our thoughts and our goals is that Julie and I are always then setting unified goals. We're always working off the same goal list. There's not like, and I've seen this in coaching clients. You've seen mm-hmm. this mostly. Sure. I mean, there's a lot of times where the husband and the wife 
if the yeah. if, you know the couples thing is really a challenge but it doesn't have to be couples it could just be a literal business partners yeah lots you know, of that where they're literally not on the same page where they have different goals yeah that and, and often know, conflict sometimes you know you should have your own personal goals right like my physical goal is not the same as your physical goal you're 50 percent bigger than me it shouldn't be right um 50 yeah i am 50 percent bigger than you <laughs> yeah so wow. we're probably not going to be lifting the same amount of weight but um, and, yet, and yet in some cases we do <laughs> sometimes i can catch up but, yes um so you know obviously you can have your own uh personal goals but as far as working together in business i think you really do have to keep the train on the tracks and have um some mutual things like you know the magic number of listings to maintain is an obvious one that both parties or multiple parties can be focused on right so if you all know what the same goal is, you're all rowing the same direction in the same ship versus somebody who maybe, you know, they want to go off on some creative angle and be marketing and not in sales. And, and that maybe drives the sales into the ground. But so you're, t- I don't want to really go too far down this. Just uh, as uh, an example. No, it's a good yeah. one. But this is, this is an example. When you see conflict in partnerships and, and, you know, couples trying to work together, most often it's because, frankly, I almost always see it this way, the man is too focused on the ego uh, gratification of uh, being creative. Yeah. Of, of being a business owner. Reinventing the wheel. Of and being an entrepreneur. And he's going to come up with a new great idea. It's very rarely women that act That's like true. that. Women are mostly, frankly, and oftentimes, um, let me think if this is true before I say it. I would say once women learn sales skills, I found this to be true, that they ultimately are the same, if not better, at building businesses than men because they are less prone to flights of ego fancy. I think that's generally true. I think it's true, too. Yeah. Because women, generally speaking, these are the biggest of generalizations ever, Mm -hmm. but they're most attached to, they are, I think a lot of times men are easily seduced by their egos, honestly. Mm -hmm. And they'll get. Oh, I'm building a team. There, you know, I'm. You know, I'm. I'm going to get more awards. I'm going to sell more houses, and they lose sight of uh, profit. Whereas I think a lot of women are naturally more inclined to want to have a higher. Their standards with regards to financial security mm-hmm. are higher than some men. A lot of men, um, because of business immaturity, frankly, take a lot of pride in their risk tolerance. Right, and their ego tells them they can handle it and they can put it back together again if they had to. Exactly. And, and some of them actually have a pattern of doing that Yep. because that's how they find their motivation. And I think that comes with uh, business maturity as well. Right, but they find their motivation to drill down on what Julie just said because they – and you guys, maybe you're like this. You'll have these cycles where you have success and failure, success and failure. And you often will attract other people that have similar cycles and you read books and you're attracted to sort of this you know myth that you have to – uh, you can only have short-term uh, bouts of success with long-term bouts of suffering and failure. And it's the whole, um, you know, America, uh, the American, um, well, I'll just go to what Warren Buffett said. Warren Buffett said, why, does, why do Americans love to celebrate the comeback story? I love to celebrate the business person that built it, never lost it, kept building it, kept building it, right. and never the, lost it. The continue built story, yeah. Right, but in real estate, it's always about, I had a really good year 127 years ago. Right. And now I'm just basically digging my way back. And then, it, it, but this happens in life in general. It's kind it's, of celebrated, though. Well, yeah, it is. I, I mean, mean, think about a lot how of many, movies are made about that. When was the last time you you actually saw a movie about somebody? Frankly, I mean, this is gratuitous, but like us, who built something, who didn't lose it all, who kept on building it every single year. We think I'm of one. To think about that. None. 
I'm, you know, the only ones that come to mind, honestly, this is a weird thought. Is, it's because the comeback story is romanticized. Yeah. Well, sure. And, it, you know, there's more drama to it, certainly. And right. there's nothing against that. Good job coming back. But I, I, my mind went to a lot of the um, actors and business owners that didn't really get their start until they were like mid-40s to 50s and then had their trajectory from there. It's like they had this kind of delayed launch and then rode it out to the end. Yeah, I would say that's true. But ultimately, though, especially with the just really ridiculous amount of information and truthfully, very little of it's good information. I'm guessing less than 5% of anything you read online is really useful. Most of it's just basically thinly disguised marketing messages trying to sell you something, especially in applications like Clubhouse. I mean, there's so many just different little you know people that purport to be experts or gurus and all they are really is just trying to create sales funnels and you know make themselves sound like they're some sort of guru and if you you know we we talk about this a lot so I'm not going to spend much time talking about it but when you look at the 3 to 5% of really good content that's out there some of it's fantastic i was listening to something on clubhouse this morning and i was like taking notes i didn't even i, w- I was entering into this clubhouse just because um i kind of like the topic or the idea or something um, and it was about peak performers or something. I don't mm-hmm. even remember. And there was this guy that was this doctor, physiologist, and talking about stuff, most of which I'd heard before, but some of which I'd never heard before, hmm. which was just awesome. Um, you know, he was talking about some of the, the, the way that addiction is treated, but he was also talking about essentially, um, you know, genes and just all this interesting stuff, basically. Sure. I wrote a lot of stuff down. I'll talk mm-hmm. to you about later as I w- formulate my thoughts more. Mm-hmm. But one of the things he said in particular, which I loved, and I did write this down. <clears throat> Hold on. I wrote it down to share with you, is we die from lack of stress. I love huh. that. That's funny. Isn't that funny? Hmm. So, I want, so that, that actually is one of the things I want to share with you that I, want, that yeah. I haven't shared with you before. So I want you to think about that because that is so awesome because it's so flipping true. Mm-hmm. And we, so counter to what so many people try to avoid all the time, every uh, waking hour. Well, exactly. Why yeah. is it that people fight so hard to nerf their lives up? As in, you know, surround yourself with, you know, soft landing pads. And you're not here in Puerto Rico, by the way. The kids here on their gym sets. <laughs> better be tough, man. It's OG gym set, man. You might have a couple rusty edges. You definitely are going to have some, you know, bars that aren't quite, you know, And slides to... are made of stainless steel baking in the sun. <laughs> That's Right. If you're lucky, you'll wind up in a pool. The kids quickly learn to basically avoid the hot slides in the hot day. Oh, my God. Well, they do have techniques. I, I saw them doing it the other day where they were putting water on the slide, and they had, like, a, an assembly line. One kid would go up with the bucket. But when we take Zoe back <laughs> yeah. to the mainland, and, and she's riding, and she, we're, we're, you're, like, walking around on a marshmallow surrounded oh, by yeah. other Nerf pads, and everything's nerfed up. But isn't that hilarious? That what ha- kind of playground is this? There's no danger in it. But people have normalized yeah. that. That's oh, become a sure. normal way of being. Like, oh my God, we need to take all the hard edges off. We need yeah. to remove the stress from our lives. More survival of the fittest. But don't yeah. you, so the, this guy said it obviously very concisely, and we're going to adapt yeah. that into our repertoire. Sure. But the reality of it is, is don't you think that's fascinating? I do. You know, I I've, at a core educational yeah. level. Well, indeed, at a core educational level, I'll give you an example because I, you know. Part of my end of things is keeping an eye on the savage munchkin. Um, <laughs> yesterday when she was taking the drawing class, okay, uh, one of these online, OutSchool is great, guys, if you haven't discovered it yet, OutSchool.com. But she was in a class that was mostly older kids. She's trying to learn how to draw these anime Japanese cartoon characters. And I saw in the course of like 45 minutes, the stress level of her ramping up because she couldn't do something easily. And she, you know, she loves to be the star of the show. 
and complete and utter stressed out little kid meltdown. I mean, she was crying for real. Nobody likes my drawing and I'm terrible at this, blah, blah, blah. And then, then she turned that into concentration and drilled down and got really good at it. And by the end of the class, she had a nice little accolade, little victory dance with the teacher. But why I bring that up is that that was a very clear demonstration of like educational stress and anxiety, but growth. And boy, did she seem pretty alive during that class. She was going through virtually every emotion a human can have. I know. I watched it too. You know, and that does make a person grow. It I lo- does. I looked, she was doing this in the dining room. I looked in the dining room and she, her, her, she was crying. And she was frustrated and she was angry. And she, she's just the cutest little thing, too. And I, so, those of you who have little kids, yeah, have had a lot of little kids, this is our first one, right? So, this is all a new experience for us. We share with you guys on this podcast, especially on Sunday. Uh, and then, like, she. But she, she wouldn't give up. She thinks because mostly we, we, we love having fun with her with regards to her imagination. So, she thinks she's an elf. I mean, like a literal elf, <laughs> and she thinks Julie and I are elves too, and we and we have fun with her that way. It's, I mean, honestly, it's just to stimulate her mentally and emotionally, and it's so much fun. She's such a cutie. But anyway, so we, um, I looked in the, I looked in the dining room, and I saw her, and I saw how frustrated she was, and I said, Zoe, elves don't give up. <laughs> I said, Zoe, elves don't give up, and I told her that. And I looked at her. And then she just gave me this real resolute look. And then she yeah. went back to it reluctantly. And then it was probably about 10 minutes later. She, she was so proud of herself. Yep. She drew this anime of this lady sitting on a cloud. Yeah, it was, it was awesome. And then, but to the point that basically we die without stress when we were mm-hmm. going on the bike ride yesterday. You know, <laughs> That's another good example. So, so we were going on a bike ride. I'm teaching her how to ride a bike. Yes, I know she should have yeah. learned last year, but, you know, we were moving. And there was a, you know, pandemic. I've got a lot of excuses. Earthquakes the, the year before. But the bottom line is, is Zoe didn't want to actually put in the effort. Every time you'd put her on a bike, she'd start to complain. It's too hard. I can't balance. I can't go uphill. I can't go sideways. Right. And so, we, you know, we bought her a bike. And I'm learning. This is her third bike, by the way. I mean, there's two bikes sitting at home or sitting back in Texas in a barn that I said at home. This is home now. But the moral of the story is, is this is the third try yeah. <laughs> with Zoe and biking. Um, and so I, you know. Julie and um, my mom lives with us. They were trailing us on this long walk, and I got ahead of them because I know if Zoe falls off of her bike and hurts herself, she's just going to run to mom, and basically the you know lesson's going to be over because she's going to instantly she's going to start into baby mode. She's, she's going to go into baby mode exactly. But they were far enough away, and indeed she fell off her bike and her she skinned her knee, and she started to cry and started to go through this baby routine. I set the bike up, I put the put her picked her up, put her back on her bike. I said, Zoe, elves don't quit. And then I made her basically give her a little shove. And then she started out. And guess what? Five minutes later, she was bouncing on that bike. So the moral of the story is we grow from stress. And yet the old, and you know that innately because at one point you had to learn how to ride a bike. Sure. You know, I got, I have a literal scar on my right leg or left leg from, or is it right leg? No, both. right leg. Yeah. I know I have two. From learning how to ride a bike, you know? And um, yeah, exactly. So is Julie. So you do too. All of you listeners, the same. And so when you were a kid, you knew that you grew from stress. You knew you grew from skin knees. You knew you grew from having your block punched off and you know not being the smartest kid in the room just because. You knew that you had to struggle. You knew you had to go through pain. And at what point in your life did you stop that? At what point in your life did you say you had enough? At what point in your life did you say, well, I'm done reading, reading books. I'm done feeling uncomfortable. Yeah. Now my life is about getting to comfort mode well, as fast as I can. People get to a certain level that must be comfortable enough 
that they stopped taking that risk. You know, I was just thinking while you're talking about Zoe's Wipeout, there's a, a Band-Aid brand that we have, which is like nice fabric Band-Aids. And the reason I like it is because it doesn't say Band-Aid. It says Courage Badge. <laughs> so awesome. I just think that's a nice little mental reminder, you know, yeah. that it's okay to make mistakes. And it's okay to wipe out. You get yourself together. You put yourself well, back. Let's, let's use us as an example. Yeah. So our birthdays are this week. And Julie and I bought us. I'm going to look out the window and see what they are. We bought ourselves some Tesla e-bikes. But these are a, uh, sort of a hybrid between – what is yours? What is this, Julie? Let me look so I can give them an actual in case someone wants to Google it. A Tesla X160 and a Tesla – or I'm sorry, Tesla. Segway. Did I Segway. say Tesla? You did. Sorry. You're thinking Se- electric. <laughs> I know. Exactly. See how Elon Musk has taken over. Brain. My, <laughs> he's branded electric to be uh, Tesla. It's awesome, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Anyway, so it's a Segway X160 and a Segway uh, X260. So yes, we bought ourselves, you guys should Google those. We bought ourselves these dirt bike things that are um, re- legitimately fast. Now, just for the record, Julie and I have no motorcycle experience. Um, and we don't need to register these so we can just drive them around where we live here in uh, the Ritz-Carlton in Puerto Rico. But they're basically a hybrid bicycle motorcycle. That can go really freaking fast. Yeah, which it, I didn't realize when you ordered them. So You didn't know they were that fast? Maybe I'm a little bit less risk than you, but but they are fun. I mean, I, I had to... I'm what today is day two, so I'm still kind of getting well, over my but fear you're, of it. You're about to tell what I was going to share with them. Yeah, you didn't want to ride it the first day because you were afraid yep. of it. Yeah, well, I mean, I didn't realize till we were putting it together. And it's funny. Yesterday at my first, you know, foray out, I was as we were going over bumps, and I'm trying not to kill myself, and you know, hoping my helmet's tight enough. I was thinking that uh, isn't it interesting to ride the bike? I was thinking about our our spokes and the wheel analogy. That you know, when you put your own bike together. You're kind of owning it in a different way. Right. You know, your accountability is different than when you just, you know, I mean, yes, it was partially put together. Don't, you know, we didn't put together a well, motorcycle, we had to assemble, but we did have we, we to do a lot. We had to assemble probably like 30% of yeah, them. Yeah, we had to actually, you know, read instructions and make sure we used all the parts. Right. But as I was riding over those bumps, trying to control something that weighs probably close to what I weigh, and yep. I don't want to fall on, on it or hurt it or have it hurt me. I was thinking, you know, I, I hope that we put our spokes in the wheel together, right? Mm-hmm. You know, which is ironic considering what we teach during the week. But, well, so let's talk about that experience you know. because actually this doctor that was on this clubhouse mm-hmm. is actually drilling down on a couple of sub points, but you're kind of meandering about it in, our, in the Tim and Julie way, which is great. Mm-hmm. So like when we were riding yesterday, because it was and it was just fantastic. We rode on the beach. Fine. We rode through the jungle. We rode off road, on road. You did great. I mean, you, you. you drove like a grandma, but I mean, you know, <laughs> on a motorcycle, on a motorcycle, but whatever. You were I'm fine. Sure I look like Kermit with a helmet. Yeah. Well, yeah. you know. But right. moral of the story is you did it, and the yeah. moral of the story is I did it, and mm-hmm. the moral of the story is we were uh, learning as we were doing it. It's not like a you know the whole. It's not that. There's difficult. nothing passive about it though. Not and really. we were present while we were doing it. Yeah. And it forced us to um, be present with what we we're doing out of uh, fear of hurting ourselves, fear, fear of hurting someone that might be around us, mm-hmm. um, you know, all those types of things. And it keeps you present. But that did cause stress. Yes. So we were on those things. I bet we rode yesterday. We definitely rode for over 10 miles, maybe mm-hmm. more like 12 or 15 miles. Yep. And I was feeling basically an omnipresent uh, stress definitely. the entire time. Yep. There was no relaxed riding. No. Right. I think I tried it once and almost tipped over. Exactly. I have to be thinking <laughs> yeah. about what my hand is doing on the... Yeah. I told you, I have a hard time reminding myself to let go of the accelerator. I'm hitting the handbrake. Yeah. Different than... I mean, on a bike, you can coast and kind of look around and take in the scenery. Right. And I think eventually we'll get to the point where it's it's so funny to actually observe our own conscious incompetence. You know, exactly. like yesterday I was absolutely... 
I don't know what I, I still, I don't know what I don't know. There's a lot of videos we have to watch and Well, learn. remind them what the stages are. So you've got unconscious incompetence. You literally don't know what you don't know. Okay, that was Julie when she was actually ordering these from Segway. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah, I just thought they looked cool. And maybe they'd be a little faster than a regular bike and, you know, whatever. Um, and then, then you go into conscious incompetence. I am consciously incompetent. I would say that I'm deeply in that as of today. I know there's a lot of stuff that I don't know. I know but there's some right videos. there, mm-hmm. isn't that fun being in this stage where we are? Both. So that goes to your your point mm-hmm. that stress keeps you alive, right? So isn't it interesting that you can have exciting experiences while you also have, you know, maybe even you could call it fearful experiences or nervous or whatever, that that happens simultaneously. And we've talked before about the fact this that, the that this is why... When you go on vacation, your vacation memories are so much more vivid is because you're forced to be present. Third phase. Okay, so the third phase, and I know they all sound the same, so maybe write them down. Um, Conscious competence. This is when you've learned some stuff, okay? This is when you've actually, like, you know, read the instructions, watched some videos, and most importantly, practiced it, right? You can't just... At least for now, maybe there's people working on this, but for now, you can't just plug it into the back of your head like the Matrix, download some YouTube videos, and then, you know, get up and do it. You have to actually practice some stuff, right? So that's conscious competence where you're getting better, but you still have to concentrate. Then you get to unconscious competence, which is like autopilot. And that that's, in this case, maybe like the guys you watch on motocross competition where they can, you know, not only are they riding it, but, you know, they're flipping it in the air and they're not wiping out, they're not landing on their head, you know, and they're actually competitive. That You can't just skip all the stuff and go right to that, much as people would like to. And for doing this, being that it's strictly a hobby, I'm more than content just getting to the third phase. Me too. Truthfully. I, I think yeah. that's better. Because, you know, be- what does happen in unconscious competence sometimes is after you've been there for a while, you get complacent and then you can get lazy. And that's when people have accidents too. Yeah, that's true. Because you stop feeling challenged. You stop You're paying overconfident. attention. You're mm-hmm. overconfident. Well, so here's his examples. And again, the point being, we die from lack of stress, which again is completely different than what everyone preaches. Um, and I always love contrarian advice because it's almost always true, especially when you think about how commonsensical what he said is. Yeah. So he said, if you don't continue to catch colds, your immune system won't improve. And if your immune system won't improve, that means you're more susceptible from to die to things like, you know, just normal things like that normal people would have the immune, right? The flu it was, was actually his examples. But, you know, and I got to thinking about that, like, and the other example he gave was um, bones, for example. Mm. He said, if you're not lifting weights mm-hmm. and you're not doing things that uh, essentially keep challenging your skeletal structure, mm. your bones actually start to weaken. That's interesting. Well, think about astronauts. I mean, the, one of the problems, yeah. when, right. So when astronauts go onto space stations and just whatever they're going to do, and one of the greatest issues they have with uh, long flights to Mars, uh, it, these are all real issues, is your body actually starts to... Uh, atrophy. I, atrophy. I was going to say degrade, kind of the same well, thing. Well, your bones and your muscles, I think. And that was the other point he said so if you're not constantly putting yourself under stress your body actually you know it does degrade you lose muscle you lose a skeletal structure your bones will start to break you won't be able to pick up the that slurping is julie having her coffee and if she if her muscles said after she wouldn't be able to pick up nope. her heavy coffee cup 
So these are all the types of things that's so obvious is the truth. And yet so many people buy into, well, not even buy into, they all are ultimately looking to return to this place of complacency. Yeah, that's the default. The, the couch, the, mm-hmm. the, the mental, emotional love seat, basically, mm-hmm. is where they're, they're always trying to head to. And you can see it manifesting itself. And I put with quotes around this, uh, the uh, business decisions that real estate agents will try to make with building their business. What they're trying to do is do anything but put themselves under anything that remotely resembles stress. Yes. And that's the reason that these easy button sons of bees are so uh, easily uh, successful selling stuff to you guys because all all they have to do is basically, you know, tell you that their thing that they're selling you is going to somehow uh, make it so you don't have to feel stress. I mean, that is the underlying message of every gimmick idea that's ever been sold to anybody. You know, the easy button, that mm-hmm. is what it is. And I don't like easy buttons and hacks. I don't like terms like that because what they're trying, it's, they're always, look, they're either, either knowing or unknowingly lying to you. And the lie is that you don't have to put in the hard work and you can avoid the stress. And you have to know that intuitively. I know you know that because you learned to ride a bike. Right. You had to fail when you competed in a spelling bee and then you had to go home and practice. You know, for Julie, she had to practice her butt off to become a world class uh, flautist and play in orchestras and soundtracks and whatever. You know, so these are the types of things that I want you guys to internalize. Why is it you're trying so hard to avoid stress? And and here's the funny thing as far Mm -hmm. as business building and making money. Everything that you want in life is basically on the other side of doing what you don't want to do when you don't want to do it at the highest level. For sure. And if you make a list of the things that you're avoiding the most in life, mm-hmm. all of those things are going to be the things that you perceive will cause you stress, will make, may, might cause you discomfort, disease, and uh, you know, uh, dealing with fear, right? So all the things that you know are, would be the most valuable things. I saw on our clubhouse the other morning, I mm-hmm. asked the question, what was the question again? It was my Monday question. Uh, was that the, um, what would you do differently if you had it to no, do all over? That was or my was Tuesday question. The, um, what do you do in your day that uh, you basically hate the most but has the best benefit? Right. And the answer to all of them, and this is a panel of people that um, I know love, Julie and I know love and respect, all of them ended up saying the same thing. They all ended up saying they'd pick up the phone more often. Every single one of them. And look, guys, I'm not stacking the panel with uh, just pure Tim and Julia loyalists and fans and podcast listeners. Never heard from before. Right. Some of the people were just people in the audience that raised their hand and contributed. And and they all said the same thing. I would, in essence, do what I've been avoiding for, in some cases, decades, which is pick up the damn phone. I'd have real conversations with people. I'd put myself directly in front of people. I'd stop hiding out behind my you know, my digital device, right? Stop thinking that somehow the uh, the ones and zeros of the digital world are going to somehow result in uh, dollar signs and ones and zeros in my bank accounts. It doesn't work like that. So the way that you make money ultimately is learning to master the art and science of doing what you don't want to do when you don't want to do it at the highest level. And I would add one thing to that too, Tim, you know, just from a coaching standpoint, is that many people have written that uh, it all stems back to fear of being out of control or fear of not knowing what to say next or not knowing what to do next. It's that like that fear of embarrassment somehow, fear of confrontation. All of it stems back to the same thing. So one of the things we do in coaching is we give you one simple script to unlock all of that problem. But you know, Julie, the, yeah. the thing that's always frustrated me about our business mm-hmm. and frustrates me in general is that you can give somebody – there is definitely a bridge. And it's, it is coaching, right? Mm-hmm. It, but there's the bridge between – like our knowledge and what we give them as far as our coaching program 
I'm 100% confident we'll solve their problems. Yes. Okay. With regards to the real estate businesses. If they do it. Right. But that's the, the if they do it part. Yeah. So that's the thing that's always fascinating to me is, and I know, and I can sense it now intuitively and Julie can too, and all of our coaches and all, all the staff, everyone that's forward deployed and dealing directly with um, our customers, agents, they can feel it too. You can listen subconsciously. You listen for, um, you know, their verbal cues as to whether or not someone's actually going to take action on the information. And it's, it's, it's if they're future pacing the action, if, if they're talking about doing it presently, if they're talking about goals, but they're reluctant to drill down and hold themselves accountable to an action and plan. And literally their language too. Yep. Try it out. Right. You know, see how it goes. You know, see if it works. All of those nebulous words are tell. When you say those words and your subconscious mind hears you saying those words, your subconscious mind goes, well, Bob is obviously not committed to this particular goal. Not going to do it. Not going to do it. Bob's going to hit his, you know, move his ass back to that Barco lounger as fast as he can. (laughs) Bob wants to be comfortable and confident. Bob said, we're going to try out, you know, learning how to be a listing agent. We're going to try out how to this or the other thing. That doesn't mean jack. So your mind is not locked into that particular goal. And actually, this is something else I wrote down for you. Let me try to find it. And you want to talk about one of your articles? Or, or is it too um, off topic? <laughs> it doesn't matter. It's Sunday. No, Who cares if we have a topic or not? Yeah. Um, let me, oh, this is a good one. Mm-hmm. Um, point. Uh, this I'm actually writing these points down for a future podcast. They don't spend – okay, This in the topic, or at least what was motivating me, um, the, the prevailing thought for these points mm-hmm. that I'm writing down – was essentially what is it that top performers, this title sucks, but what is it that top performers do that others don't? Yeah. And the next point I wrote down was, and again, guys, this isn't the end product. These are, this is just my, I'm in the formulation stage of this outline for a future show. Um, they don't, as top performers, top producers, successful people, however, whatever word you want to use, they don't spend any time looking in the wrong direction. They don't spend any time looking in the direction they don't want to go. And I'll tell you what motivated me for that. Mm-hmm. So two things. Um, so I have a little bit of racing background. I've taken Skip Barber racing schools, SCCA license. I was eligible for, never actually got the license. Yeah. I've, Julie and I have done some, um, you know, organized Track racing days. in different cars. Um, we've been blessed to be able to have Ferraris and Lamborghinis and things like that. I would put Appalachian driving experience up there, even though it wasn't supposed to be a race day. You people sure acted like it was. Yeah, that was awesome. A GT3 RS. But in any event, so we've got background. And this is just something we do for fun. It's not anything we've ever actually focused on. And I did race go-karts and whatnot. And Julia actually helped me with that. But, you know, but the reason I've never really spent much time on it is because I know my personality. And if I were to ever actually go down the path of really wanting to uh, be a race car driver, I would be obsessed with it. And I wouldn't be satisfied until I was actually winning races. And And the difference between where I was always ending up in races, which was usually... Uh, Like there's the top group, which is usually three people, and then there's the best of the rest, and then there's the people that shouldn't have been on the track in the first place. That'd be me. (laughs) Exactly. That'd be (laughs) Julie. I was usually in the middle of the best of the rest pack. That's right. And I was happy there because it was fun. I didn't worry about it. I wasn't really caring whether I had the latest equipment or gear. It's a fun spot. It was a fun, exactly. It was a fun spot. But I knew, and that's the same reason I've never learned to play golf. Yeah. You know, because I'd get obsessed with it and I'd be pissed if I wasn't winning. Mm-hmm. So, you know, but that actually works to an, another point that I wrote down. But the here's what I learned one of the first times I, I was in, um, taking a, a class at Skip Barber, right? We were driving these open wheel race carts, race cars, um, and these things were going over 100 miles per hour and they had no aerodynamics on them. I will not bore you non-car geeks. And your class was in the rain on top of it. Yeah, that. and it rained for four days. And so the car, we were having to race in the, it was, and we were at mid-Ohio. 
which is a hell of a hard track to learn on in the mm -hmm. dry. And they took all the aerodynamics off these cars, which means they moved around constantly. They were sliding around constantly, but damn, it was fun. Yep. But I remember one of the first things they taught us was don't, like, if you start to slide, which everyone was constantly. Matter of fact, in the history of Skip Barber. I remember. Our, our group. Uh, wrecked more cars in that four days. Maybe it was three days. Yeah. Than any other Skip Barber the class. The most wreckingest ever. class. Yeah. I, I, it's funny that you guys are all proud of that. Yeah. Well, it was hilarious. <laughs> Carl, who was doing with me, he I wrecked remember. what three or four cars. I remember. Like balled them up. I have some pictures of that. <laughs> yeah. He was proud of himself. Oh, Matter yeah. of fact, I think he took some of the parts home. <laughs> I think so. His wrecks were like. Uh, pig pen from peanuts in a car yeah, exactly. you know there's like stuff flying around everywhere yeah, you'd see this big poof of dust off in the corner that was they, carl yeah that was carl <laughs> but anyway so one of the first things they teach you is if you're in a slide don't look in the direction the car is sliding look in the direction you want to go so i'm going to say that again because i want you to think about it if you're finding yourself all of a sudden um, experiencing a bout of failure or something is not going right do not concentrate on the place you don't want to go like when you're in a race car uh, you don't want to be looking at the wall if you start to slide because you will draw your subconscious mind will actually cause your your hands to steer towards the wall. Your hands go where your eyes are looking, right? Uh, exactly. And so, if you wonder why you see so many people hit, like you'll see this, uh, you know, you'll be driving down a country road, lots of you know pastures and open space and trees here and there, and yet when you come across a car accident you'll see that the person somehow managed to hit the one tree that was within yeah. like five miles. And so you ask yourself why. It's because for some reason they started to slide off the road. Their mind went to, oh, my God, I don't want to hit that tree. And their eyes went to, oh, my God, I don't want to hit that tree. And their hands then went to, I'm going to hit that tree. Well, you saw Zoe do it yesterday on her bike ride. She was headed right for the wall. I was behind her. I could see that she was looking at the wall. Wiped out, hit the wall, ended up in a ditch. And she did, because literally. Because she happened to be looking right at where, and that's where her hands went. Yep, and she was all balled up with her bike on top of her. It looked like, you know, Zoe It looked bike. pretty bad. Yeah, well, you were behind us, right? Yeah. So you could only see from a distance. And she started to do her little baby routine, and I said, nope, we're not doing that. I but took you her taught her that you to watch where you're looking. I untangled her from the bike. I then basically put the bike back up on two wheels. And then, you know, it has training wheels on it, but, you know, we're going to do – I understand a lot of you guys told me about balance bikes. We have that too. So we put her back on the bike. I picked her back up, and she wanted to start crying and doing her baby routine. I reminded her that she can't give up. She got back on the bike, and then before I let her ride again, I asked her why she actually fell into the wall, into the ditch, and she um, didn't know. I said, Zoe, you will always go in the direction which you look, and if you're headed towards a ditch – uh, you're going to drive into the ditch. And now, obviously, I'm trying to interweave into her little baby brain. Well, she's not a baby, but her little seven-year-old brain. I'm trying to get her to understand the, the, the really the psychology of winning and losing, a success and failure. Your brain and your body and your spirit and your soul will always go in the direction that you're concentrating on the most. And if what you're concentrating on the most if what is what... It is what you don't want, you will create, and I hate using this word, but it's an apt word to use, you will manifest in your life what you don't want. Mm -hmm. So if you're spending a lot of time focusing on what you don't want, 100% of the time you're going to get what you don't want.
Absolutely. So that's like, you know, being uh, not as financially stable as you maybe should be at this point. You're too, fo- you're too focused yeah. on basically pinching pennies and you're too focused right. on being poor. That's you're, what you'll create. You're too focusing on how to, you know, basically live at a, at a very, very low level. You're just going to manifest and bring to you more being poor. And trust me, you're hearing from two people who started out very, like, less than poor. Yeah. yeah. Our, our weekly grocery budget was 13 bucks a week. Didn't we find that when I we I have moved? that somewhere. I think I have that in a scrapbook somewhere, one of the... T- one of our many moves. And I even had the the grocery list. I remember this was when we were first married, maybe even before we were first married. We got married in 1991, just to yeah. date that out. Yeah, but still, thir- even 13 bucks a week was pretty shabby back then. It was mostly ramen noodles. It was because you could buy 10 for a dollar. Yep. Uh, mac and cheese is probably how we gained 30 pounds when we started real estate. But Well, um, yeah, probably. Uh, let's, well, noodles are cheap. Ramen noodles, mac and cheese. Um, Poor people food. Some sliced meats and that, you know, not a whole lot of, I think we got saltines for our soups. Yeah. Well, (laughs) fortunately for us, we didn't stay in that mode. Yeah. No, because that'll motivate you. Right. Well, that's the whole point of being poor and struggling because you want to not be poor and struggling. Exactly. So you're going to figure out how to be successful and rich. Indeed. Or at least ideally you are. But if you basically are constantly surrounding yourself with poor people, thoughts and actions, you're going to stay poor. Yeah. Because we could have, instead of focused on moving up in life, we could have focused on how we could have gotten Raymond noodles even cheaper with some kind of coupon or something. Exactly. And we, ruminated on that. And that's what a lot of people do. I bet mm-hmm. you in that sure. little apartment complex that we lived when we first got married, There's I can probably guarantee people you, still living there. I bet you yeah. there are. And I bet you if we go back to that first house we bought when we were 22 and 23 on East Jeffrey, I bet you a lot of our neighbors sure. still live I'm there. Sure they are. Assuming they're still alive. Yep. Because <laughs> that was a long damn time <laughs> yeah, ago. That's true. Yeah. But I mean, so the, the point being is that really successful people do not spend any time looking in the direction that they don't want to go. And hopefully you guys can all internalize that because that's really true. And now you think about what, what draws your attention into the direction you want to go. How about this? Every damn thing. Yeah. Every pretty shiny damn- things, sparkly things. <laughs> exactly. You know, dramatic things because you don't live a media-free life. Right. That's another big black hole people fall into, right? That That becomes confirmation bias and you believe a certain thing and then you go searching for that. Did you read my notes? My oh, you don't have. That's what I wrote you know, down. Yeah. Oh, media free. <laughs> yeah, that's what I wrote down. Yeah. So, so that's our, a big one. Our brains are linked, obviously. Clearly, we have one of Elon Musk's Neuralinks. <laughs> we had them installed. <laughs> Indeed. Yes. But I think that's a big lesson. You know, is that um, what if you're concentrating on the wrong things, then you'll get more of that. Well, so but it really does take, and which is another point that I wrote down. Where did I write that down? It was. I mean, these are good notes, right? Yeah. I want to listen to I that. Did, I, I wrote, actually, I was writing stuff for two hours straight this morning. Um, okay, there it is. Point number four. Uh, focus. And this is your, you know, you have this. Follow one course until successful. Yes. And so uh, very successful people. And I, I've, you know, I've always heard this and you and I have always followed this um, approach mm-hmm. is we are really good at very, very few things. This is true. Like, I mean, honestly, I bet you I'm, uh, I'm good at a lot of things. Um, average at pretty much everything else, but I'm really good. If I'm being really honest, with no more than maybe three things. Yeah, professionally, I, I would agree for me as well. Yeah, yeah, and that's what you're supposed to be. There was there was an interesting um, uh, study done recently, and there's another one that maybe we can share with these guys about the correlation between uh, money and happiness. Mm-hmm. But the uh, big takeaway was one of the best ways for you to experience. The, I did share this with you last week. One of the best ways for you to be consistently happy is to be really good at one or two things, and not a lot. And it was our good friend. I'm just making that up. He's, I've never met him. <laughs> Matthew McConaughey, who, who oh, said, yeah. who yeah. said basically, life is. Uh, what do you say? Life is. Uh, see. Life is short, 
no, good no, at one let me, thing. Let me try to get it right. Something Give me a second. Like Life yeah. is barely long enough to get good at one thing. Choose wisely. Yes. Yeah, that's yeah. a great quote. Right. It's so so what he was saying is if you, if you go from one thing to the other to the other to the other, you're never actually going to get to the point where you're any good at it. Um, and that's one of the mm-hmm. things that I think that is incredibly true as mm-hmm. when we when we moved here. And Julie and I live in Dorado, Puerto Rico. And we uh, we live at this, you know, this really amazing place. And we're surrounded by other entrepreneurs. And I'll, I promise you guys that the topics in which these guys can, and gals can speak fluid, uh, with fluidity is virtually nothing. They, you will have friends that like to talk about this, friends that like to talk about that. And then as soon as you start meandering outside of what their wheelhouse is, they don't really have a, a lot to offer, at least not beyond a casual Well, but that's perspective. okay because we have very interesting conversations because yes. we're also the same way, right? Sure. So you pick up lots of different things, but it, it is really nice to be surrounded by people that have, you know, we have that commonality of going after those things that we're almost specialists at. And yet there's so many different things that people well, are good at. Well, to re- reach the level that, cool. that we are and our neighbors are, you are a specialist. You, you have be. become an ex- a yep. true expert. You've earned, you don't live where we live. I mean, I bet you the average sale price of a home here, and thank God we didn't have to pay this, but I bet you the average sale price of a home here is at least, it's got to be at least four and a half million. It may even be higher than that. Did you see the pocket listing for nine million in estates? No, posted. Yeah, seriously. Yeah, so it's is rising. It so, it's literally rising. Hold every on, day. the pocket listing in estates is listed by the developer. No, 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 no. by the agent, a friend of ours. Are you, which one are you talking about? Dorado Country Estates. Yes. Okay, so that one, that house. You ready for this? Yeah. That house was for sale for seven million dollars. I think what, it's the same one. Yeah, it's the same one. And now she's got it listed for nine. Yep. Well, so okay, so just <laughs> no, that, because wait, yeah. that was only three or four months ago that we talked I know. to her. Well, here's a new phenomenon. You pointed this out in some of the North Carolina listings you were looking at. Yeah. And you you sent me on a little, you know, trail ride into real estate uh, about that. And yeah. it, it is, there are many instances in different markets, not just in North Carolina. This is a new thing. Um, sellers, listing agents will put it on the market, gauge by how many showings are getting scheduled, and then raise the price two yep. or three days later. Yeah, the listing I showed you in That's Murphy. crazy, right? Yep. I mean, wow, what a hot market. So this in Murphy, Julie and I have, those of you guys who are in North Carolina, especially around Murphy, North Carolina, even though we live in a blessed, beautiful place, so do you. And we're sort of jealous of you because <laughs> it's some of the most beautiful forested areas and mountains we've ever experienced in our lives. So much so that we bought a little house up in Murphy. And uh, what Julie's talking about was this house that was for sale for three sixty nine, mm-hmm. and I s- showed Julie in the MLS or on Realtor.com rather. I showed her that the I, there were there was this they raised the price by fifty grand or something, right? And, and then there's others I've seen in the past where they're actually raising the price. Well, unlike our example in Dorado, we were just talking about, you know, why not see what you can get? So I don't know, but I that just meandered into our expertise, right? Because so we back. study this stuff. So you want me to tell yeah. you, you want me to tell sure, you a funny sure. yeah. side point? So the, we've meandered. Mm-hmm. Our, the point that we were talking about right. is focus. And we didn't stay focused on focus. No. And we started talking about real estate. <laughs> because that's our wheelhouse. I know, but yeah. we, that's true. But we weren't focused on yeah. the word focus. We, yeah. were fo- we, we just let's, started to let's refocus. Let's get back to that. <laughs> well, but that, that is really the bottom line. 
I mean, in essence, basically focus, being myopic, being really good at just one or two things really is the key to happiness ultimately. But do take Matthew McConaughey's advice and choose wisely. Because if you end up being good at one thing that no one else really gives a rat's ass about, i.e. they won't pay you to do or perform or buy from you, then you've really just focused on something that nobody cares about. Well, the choose wisely is really critical. If you ever want to have financial, well, why did Julie stop being a professional musician? Because there wasn't much money in it ultimately. Yeah. And there was not much freedom in it. And, no. and so, and, yeah. And, you know, that it's the same as, you know, like your racing analogy. There's only a tiny, tiny percent of people that make it to that. Yep. And so I am have been, eventually I became content with being in that fun spot, like you, the best of, you know, middle pack of the best of the rest. Right. Because it is more fun that way. Um, but, you know, there's a certain population that maybe that's that's their thing and they became specialists at that. But business-wise, you better choose wisely. Well, when I was into racing, really into racing, mm-hmm. and I could have gone for, I could have gotten, I was good enough that I could have be, become on the top of the best of the rest pack. And maybe occasionally t- the guys that Definitely. were, the guys that were the top guys, way more talented than me. And I never would have, but I could have probably gotten to the point where I started getting sponsorship if I'd stayed with it long enough. Sure. I'm sure. Yeah. And, and but I didn't because the conscious decision I made talking to other people who are on that path, like the guy, I remember this one guy in particular and we did, I did a skip barber racing school with him. He was in the same crappy car I was driving. He was so much faster than me. It's like he didn't, like the laws of gravity didn't even apply. Well, because he had achieved that um, unconscious confidence, probably. Well, yeah. He he was flying a different ship because he had probably been around the track five million more times. Well, he was flying the same ship, but he basically knew how to to fly it. Right, right, right. right. So so the moral of the story is, and I got to talking with him, and I remember this, and he was saying, like, this is my career path. I want to, you know, do this, do the other thing. And it was like the third time, to Julie's point, that he'd taken that school. He was going to try to get a professional ride. And here's the thing with racing is when you have a professional ride, you're or paying for it. So when you see race car drivers that are racing, they're usually the ones that they're buying their seat. It's very, very rare anymore when you see, when you're watching a race, a car race, really a lot of uh, professional sports where the person, the, you know, the, uh, the athlete or the driver isn't writing the check for his butt or her butt to be in said car. They have to buy their seat. Hopefully that's very clear to all of you guys. It is the only, the very, very upper echelon that start getting paid to drive. And it's so few people. And then the amount of money it takes to go from being an amateur, as I was, to the point where you could actually have a shot at actually being a race car driver, the amount of money and the amount of time. And I remember having this conversation with Julie, and we were in our 20s, basically. And you know we were making money in real estate. We had the cash flow. I could have done it. There were different paths for it. I was looking into it. I was finding an engine builder, the whole thing. But then I started drilling down, writing down, okay, it's going to take not just every weekend, but then there's the weekend, then there's the time to drive to wherever the races are. And then there's the expense of the hotels, and then I'm going to have to buy this and the other thing. Da, da, Never da, da, mind da. the physical risk to your actual yeah, well, I was human in my body. Twi- in my, I was in my 20s. Yeah, I didn't, we think, didn't about think about that, that Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, but I was just adding up all the time and dedication sure. it would take just to get beyond being an amateur. And then I was comparing it to what the opportunities would present themselves in real estate. And that was my breakthrough. It was easy for me to make a decision to, you know, stay on task and stay, you know, downrange and focused on helping people making money and building our wealth. Because I knew that once we had built our wealth and we had money coming in passively where we were rich, where our money was working for us, we no longer had to work for our money. I could have, I could do whatever the hell I wanted to do with cars. And we did. And yes, but we this, are. Is, this is really critical that you don't glaze over that. Okay. 
by you choosing the real estate path because you calculated it out, you know, time, risk, money, effort. Julie, you and music as well. Absolutely. Okay. But here's the thing, because people get very distracted by the passion uh, idea, right? So I better be passionate about it or I'm not going to make any money at it. Not necessarily true. So the point you're making is you, although we followed the real estate path, that does not mean that you have to break up with your quote passion. Okay. You are still a huge race fan. You have awesome cars. You go on amazing drives. Okay. I still am tuned into music. That doesn't mean that you have to have this big breakup and never go back to, you know, what you're passionate about again. It actually makes what you're passionate about about 50 billion times better. You're actually reading right now. I just flipped my page over. You're reading my point eight. Oh, good. Yeah, I isn't, that, isn't that funny? That's good. But isn't that hilarious? Mm-hmm. And Julie, let me just read what I wrote down. And Julie's actually given you the content for it. Is um, they don't believe that they have to be passionate about what they're doing to be successful at it. And that is really that's a, huge. That's one of the greatest lies. There's so many lies that have been normalized um, amongst entrepreneurs, business people, but all this bullshit that I see mm-hmm. like um, that's in the educational system now. Mm-hmm. And that being one of them, right? Follow your passion and everything will follow. Sure. Horse shit. I, I think I've been thinking about this a lot too. And I, I did write about this in the Harris Rules book where I gave my music example of me having that realization that it was okay to pursue something that wasn't like your original passion. Okay, so get the Harris Rules book if you haven't already. But On Amazon, Barnes & Noble, yes. and a bookstore near you. Yes, indeed. So um, Called Harris Rules, over 400 five-star reviews. <laughs> exactly. So sorry, we slipped into that. All right, so you know, I think that it's, it's a really big deal. I've been thinking about this, and I think that, yes, somewhat the educational system um, does teach you that, right? Otherwise, probably they wouldn't have classes like, you know, basket weaving and pottery and stuff like that. And that's all good. Um, and I have a cousin who's a great ceramicist, but she's also like an astrophysicist. Yeah. You know, that's her real job. Um, but I think that's a big deal. And I think when you're in your 20s, you're much more susceptible to that because all of your 20-something friends you are drill saying down, that you to you as well. You want to drill on this at the, at the risk of being uh, politically incorrect? You want to drill down on that? I'm down if you are. Oh, really? Well, let's Maybe. see. It's we'll, Sunday. We won't it's take Sunday. it too far. But, this, this podcast yeah. usually has about a third of the listens as our normal one, so we can talk yeah, about things that are politically right. incorrect. These are the people that know, love, and care about us, so maybe they'll, <laughs> maybe maybe they'll, they'll give okay us a it. longer leash to hang ourselves. Yeah. But really, if you think about it, oh, the, the core issue with kids that are learning all this bad information about, mm-hmm. um, you know, essentially life lessons, the, the people that grow up not realizing that their quest should be to not be dependent Right. In other words, be rich where your money works for you and you no longer have to work for your money. Independent. Independent. Not be dependent, right? To be free, free of a job, free of the tyranny of essentially having to worry about money. The the people that are teaching our kids and a lot of the popular philosophies of life are really deeply rooted in never being free or independent Mm -hmm. because they're mostly rooted, and this is where I'm going to go on thin ice, and I'll catch shit for it if I do, I do, on socialism. Mm -hmm. And that is the truth. They're built on the idea that the all-powerful Oz, aka the government, is going to always protect you, and you and you're and that's where you you should be living in in servitude towards the betterment of everyone, with yeah. the idea that everyone is essentially like I I'll tell you let, let me just mm-hmm. drill down on this okay because these mm-hmm. are new thoughts but so I'm listening to a book right now mm-hmm. and the premise of the book and it's fiction yes mm-hmm. I listen to fiction books who cares mm-hmm. um, and the fiction book is about essentially what happens when AI 
or they call it AGI, uh, artificial general intelligence, hmm. when that becomes prolific. And the theories, and I've heard it and you've heard it, that many people are suggesting that's going to be within a decade or whatnot. Mm-hmm. And so the socialistic sort of communistic type communal-minded people are saying once AI kicks in that there's going to have to be universal basic income. You've heard this yeah. before? Okay, yeah. you've heard that part because um, I forget the politician that was running on the Democratic side. He started proposing that. Mm-hmm. And so uh, UBI. And so why is it that they propose that there's going to be UBI? Well, the technologists and the socialists are all basically, at the end of the day, under the belief that essentially, um, you know, uh, artificial intelligence, AGI, is going to somehow make most people irrelevant. Mm-hmm. In other words, AGI is going to be able to operate so much faster that most people, including people, in, you know, what uh, white collar type jobs, coders, you know, computer programmers, all those people, those people will become irrelevant because AGI will be able to replicate them fast enough. And in this book, it gave an example, which I thought was fascinating. So I'll describe this to you. So there was a, um, well, here, do you have uh, on your Gmail, do you have the widget turned on that will predict what you're about to type? Yes. And then you can just hit tab? Yeah. Okay, that's, that's AGI. Mm-hmm. So what AGI is doing is it's essentially paying attention to what everyone writes in email Everyone on planet Earth, uh, Google's artificial intelligence is studying what you're writing and what they're studying and what the uh, artificial intelligence is doing is it's learning um, how humans communicate. It's learning how you phrase things. It's learning how you tell jokes. It's studying, paying attention, emulating, copying. That's where this widget is able to then predict what you're about to uh, type. Now, and, tr- and I'd say it's probably 90% accurate. But truthfully, point, when it predicts yeah. what I'm about to type, yeah. what it predicts is better than what I was about to type. Yeah, I was going to so, say that. Sometimes it's better. <laughs> it actually makes me look smarter. More accurate, more grammatically. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, so what it's, yeah. it's actually predicting that I'm going to be smarter than I actually am. So right now, the AGI is making yeah. me look good, mm-hmm. but you get my point. I think it's more polite overall than most of us totally, are sometimes. Totally. It's more articulate. It's yeah. better spoken. Okay, it's so already spell-checked. It's already spell-checked. <laughs> Throwing okay. in the commas in the right places. No comma splice. Yep. My uh, English teacher my freshman year in college called me comma splice Mr. is my nickname, splice. right? Um, he actually, he actually um, banned me from using commas in uh, a couple papers because he said he couldn't read them anymore because they didn't know how to use commas. And he was right. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, so I do now. Or at least it appears that I do because I have Grammarly, which is also an artificial intelligence thing. And uh, Google. So anyway, in this book, they're talking about these people at a conference. And this founder, his name was Jeff Kim or something. Yeah, Jeff Kim. He's up on stage and he's this Korean guy and he's this like, you know, he's this Oracle type. He's kind of like Elon Musk is now. Mm-hmm. And he's up having this conversation up on stage at, you know, call it some you know CNET type thing or some big tech conference in Austin or they didn't say where. And so this lady's interviewing him. And what's happening is the transcription of what they're saying is appearing uh, on the screen behind them. Neither one of them can see it, but the audience can see it. And what's happening is the artificial, they're talking and the artificial intelligence is then predicting what they're going to say a minute in advance of what I'm saying it. Wow. So so they're having this conversation just like what Julie and I are saying. Imagine Julie and I having a screen behind us. And this thing has listened and studied to Julie and I. For, to Julie and I. It's read what we've written in the past, what we've read in the future. It's listened to all of our podcasts. It's studied. It absolutely knows how we communicate, especially amongst each other. And, and then it's able to predict what I'm going to say next, which is fairly simple. It's fairly easy to predict what I'm going to say next. I'm probably going to start bitching and moaning about branding or marketing. Or and possibly about buying leads. And buying leads yeah. and probably about you know, teams and profitability. Sure. I mean, I'm pretty predictable. Fairly, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Those are my topics, right? Well, so this artificial intelligence thing on, in this book was talking about 
you know, so the, the words would appear in, uh, that they had said in, in uh, black, and then the artificial intelligence thing would pop up, not just the concepts of what they're going to say, but the actual words and phrasing what they're going to say. Mm-hmm. And those words appeared on this, you know, basically a screen in yellow. Mm-hmm. And when it was right, the words would then turn green. This is pretty crazy. And so the lady interviewing the Jeff character didn't realize this was happening behind her. And only the really attentive people in the audience, you know, the engineer types, were knowing what was going on too. And so the our um, our main character, was uh, his name is uh, Colt, was uh, you know in the audience not knowing what was going on. He's a CIA operative, all, by the way. So he's in the audience. And I did find out, Julie, that there's more CIA and FBI people that are undercover, in essence, um, spies mm-hmm. in Silicon Valley than anywhere else in the world. That's interesting. And that's it? not just the United States. There's also Israeli. Huh. Every, every country in the world has uh, the greatest density of spies based in Silicon Valley mm-hmm. because of, that's essentially where the, as, you know, that's the technological yep. front lines of everything that's going to come next. Um, and so then what they were, the takeaway was that the artificial intelligence that this, you know, fictitious company had developed was able to predict a minute into the future. And so then the Which qu- is not a stretch to believe based on how our email AI right. is going, right? Right. And so, but think about that. If you have artificial intelligence, the, I, I'm going back to our focus point. I don't even know how I got on this, but who cares? So, <laughs> it's okay. so it's Sunday, right? So the artificial, so if you can actually predict what someone's going to say um, a minute in advance, that means that you can actually then have, I mean, just think of all the different ways that you could use that for the sake of uh, good and bad. Mm-hmm. You know, there's so many different, you could make crap tons of money if you knew what someone was going to say a minute in advance just from, you know, stock trading and things of that nature. Just everything in life, basically. If you if you had a window a minute into the future, well, so the moral of the story here is then how else can you use that technology? How else could artificial intelligence be used? What other ways could it be used? So the theory, oh, I remember. Mm-hmm. The theory, and one of the theories in the book was as people become irrelevant, which I can see, and frankly, in, in a lot of aspects of life, they would become irrelevant. Sure. But working with uh, people to buy and sell real estate, emotional mm-hmm. purchases, mm-hmm. you're not going to ever tell me that some screen is going to s- somehow be able to convey yeah. enough emotion with, uh, you know, and somehow replace a human when it comes to a Mm-mm. big stressful event like buying or selling a house. It will never freaking happen. Mm-mm. Zillow, I'm sorry. It's never going to freaking happen. Oh, hold on. You already discovered that. That's the reason you got into the real estate brokerage business. They're not hi- now hiring agents. Huh. huh. How about that? Interesting. Well, so in any event, the, the moral of the story here is, is that when you think about things like universal basic income and you think about all these other things if you all of a sudden started receiving a very basic income per year family of four fifty thousand a year let's say you're not going to want to lose that fifty thousand dollars then all of a sudden when anybody even remotely threatens to reduce your fifty thousand you're not going to vote for them and if anybody suggests that they're going to raise the fifty thousand you're going to vote for them pretty predictable right and so a lot of these futurists these technologists if their roots they're they're thinking and their approaches to life are definitely rooted in socialism, if not straight out communism. And one of the other recurring themes in this book, which is really fascinating, was they're talking about how these, um, this sort of a dystopian book, now I'm thinking about it, mm-hmm. but they're talking about how a lot of these technologists, um, they weren't just some sort of, they weren't just giving this away. They weren't just providing this to the world and saying for the betterment of man. They were actually having conversations and how they can then put themselves at the top of the, uh, you know, top of the heap, and how they then can put themselves in control of essentially humanity, uh, aka through the creation of this AI. In other words, interwoven into the this AI, this AGI was going to be 
uh, this new group of leaders were going to run the run the world. Now that is exactly what's freaking happening. I mean, truthfully, yeah. And that's what people rally against these technology companies, and that's what when you hear this, um, damn, what's that thing that's been going around? Um, the Great Reset, mm-hmm. and you hear about you know you hear about all these new terms and phrases. That's where it leads back to. But ultimately, what got me on this point? Well, what was what got me on this point? Someone, one of you in the audience needs to tell me. <laughs> it isn't the passion one. Was, uh, I think it was giving up control. Uh, no, but it was one of these points, and it was really good. But I guess really where I'm leading with this in my mind mm-hmm. is that no one really wants you to be rich. Everybody wants you to stay dependent. Oh, now I remember. Yep. Everybody wants you to be t- dependent on the schools. Everybody wants you to be dependent on the government. Everyone wants you to be dependent. Everyone wants you to be in debt. Everyone wants you to be essentially beholden because then, in essence, you are an indentured servant. Which is the reinforcement of complacency. Right. And if you're an indentured servant, if you're worried about losing your job, if you're worried about losing your income, because that will result because you have debt, losing your house. And because you have debt and you'll lose your house and you might lose your family, you might lose your security, you might lose your ability to eat. You get all this is all, this is a slippery slope. This is a construct that's designed to keep you beholden. It truly is. It is. And being beholden becomes a lifestyle. And that's what a lot of people do. They slip into, they slip, they age, they age and they still stay in this concept that they can never be independent. They always have to, now you're never truly independent. You always have a boss of some form, but the financial independence, that's what the point was. Um, they strive, uh, top producers, top performers, uh, where is it? Oh, here it is. They create professional and financial freedom. They create personal financial freedom so they can focus on big picture stuff. That was the point that I was trying to make. Well, having financial freedom does unlock your ability to have freedom in everything else that you need to do. Yeah. I think that's, that's if we circle back to, you know, our choice, for example, to pursue real estate and then, um, you know, after that financial freedom, still have the things that we care about that we could have pursued but probably not had. You know, it's okay, but it it is the financial freedom that allows you to do everything else that you want in life. And I think that on some degree, people make that out to be harder than it actually is. Well, it's harder than it actually, that's absolutely true. Because it's not hard to basically have personal financial freedom if it becomes what you're myopically focused on. Yeah, I think, I mean, ultimately that's actually easier. Assuming that you're following a path and you're focused and you don't give up and you become okay with some days of repetitious boredom because you're going towards something. Well, that's easier and faster than having the trepidation of financial insecurity for your entire life. We could could talk about this for hours because this is something, I mean, this particular topic is something both of us have passion about Mm -hmm. because it's one of those things that we wish everyone knew. And we, we didn't know it, know it with capital, you know, knowing it, we do know it now. And, and the truth is, and this really is, it's a bitter point, but it's true. Nobody wants you to be rich. That's very true. And it's true. Nobody wants you to be rich, especially the government. The government doesn't want you to realize consciously how much. It's not just your income taxes. It's, it's all your taxes, your property taxes, your gas taxes, your food taxes. It, it wants you to be beholden. It doesn't want you to actually sit down and add up how much money you're paying every year in taxes. Well, how about luxury tax and millionaire tax and billionaire tax? I, know. I mean, talk to people in Manhattan, see how happy they are with it, that. And I know people are waking up to that because look how many people are leaving the high tax areas. Oh, yeah. Yeah, but you know, there's still you move from California Choice. to Texas. Guess what? They're going to get you on property taxes. It's in some areas over three percent. So it, the tax thing is going to keep you beholden. But really, ultimately, what's going to keep you beholden is your willingness to stay part of the system. Your 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 lack of acceptance that you can be financially free. 
And once you're financially free, and the simplest of definitions, and this is part of our book, is your goal should be ultimately in your business, your output, your product should be profit. And with that profit, then you reinvest it into passive investments. And then with those passive investments then should be designed to produce enough income that you cover all your personal monthly overhead. Once your personal monthly overhead is covered, you never have to worry about your personal bills again in your entire life. And yes, you can create that. We talk about that in the last chapter of our book. But once you get there, then what does that open up? And here's the fascinating thing. None of you have an answer to that question. And it's okay. Yeah. Well, I always think I do go back to somebody like Elon Musk, right, who has so many different companies that are so radically advancing technology. How is it that that he's a guy that can concentrate on all of that stuff and be a big thinker? and create all of these things. Well, it's because he's not really worrying about paying his bills anymore, is he? He's got financial advisors taking care of that. I guarantee you that is not his prevailing thought is how I'm going to feed my family right now. I watched an interview with him after he sold his first, I think he sold PayPal, I think. Mm -hmm. And then he, he was one of the founders of PayPal. And then he was talking about getting into, no, you know what? It was a company before PayPal. Yeah, there was one before. It, there was one before PayPal that he sold, and he and there was some. It was a fairly snarky, like CNBC, old school, like early '90s. He had you know a lot of hair, for example. Hmm. It, so Elon had a lot of hair, didn't have a lot of hair, and has hair again. You know, modern science and all that. Mm-hmm. Did you know that? No. Yeah. So he um, was being interviewed. The interview, what caught my eye, obviously, was because I'm a car nerd. Was he was taking delivery of a McLaren F1, <laughs> and at the time, it was one of the world's most expensive, exclusive cars. Still is, honestly. These things now sell for like twenty million dollars. So he's taking delivery in this normal residential area, in this normal residential street. Uh, his his first wife is there with him, and they're doing this whole delivery. It's coming out of the back of the truck, and he is wearing the crappiest-looking, ill-fitting clothes you've ever seen in your life. It is hilarious when you look at this. Um, anyway, so he was being interviewed and saying, you know, this is what it's like to be in my 20s, and da 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 And then the reporter asked him a question about, like, do you feel fear? And then he just went into this long explanation that he feels fear constantly mm-hmm. that he's always like focused on mitigating the risk and that's where a lot of his thought thought process goes through how do i mitigate the risk so i don't lose what i already have the point being is that that guy came went on to become the richest man in the world so it does make sense to be and most entrepreneurs that i know mm-hmm. people think that to be a successful entrepreneur you have to be a massive risk taker i i would say that i have never met a very successful entrepreneur that was a massive risk taker never no, I think they're aware of it, like your point about Elon, yeah. which also brings us full circle to our but original a, point. But it's Stress a cal- keeps you alive. But it's, Right. There you go. But it's a calculated mm-hmm. risk. Yes. Right? Yeah. And, you, and it's managed and you're not running away from it. You're dealing with it. Well, so Elon, you say he starts a lot of companies. The truth mm-hmm. is he doesn't. He started Tesla, but he started SpaceX. So I guess those are big, right? Yeah. But then the solar panel thing, I believe yeah. they bought that. Yeah. And then there's the satellite thing. I believe he bought that. But he still has, because he's financially massively independent, like beyond the definition well, of that, let me, let me he's finish. able to do things like that. Well, that's true. Yeah. That's true. He's not fearful of losing money and never getting it back because right. he has many different buckets of, that he can go Multiple to. Multiple spokes. But what he did also was he was buying into existing businesses that had proven staff, proven, mm-hmm. you know, he was essentially buying an ongoing entity that was already successful. Yeah. And then with his money and his knowledge mm-hmm. um, and his fame, frankly, uh, he was taking it to the next well, level. Well, and Richard Branson would be another example of that. I don't think Richard Branson is a good anymore, example of that. But, no. But he was the one of the guys people always said, well, he's buying businesses that exist and making them better, like airlines. And I honestly like am that. not that impressed with Richard yeah. Branson. 
So I'm going I'm to share with you why. Mm-hmm. So Richard Branson was one of these guys that became very famous for being famous, right? In the 90s, right? The hot air balloons and all this sort of thing. Yeah. And people like Richard Branson because Richard Branson then went into this uh, long, uh, and he still is doing it, where he likes to appear that somehow his business success was attached to him operating on a higher spiritual plane. Oh, he I see. Me- I didn't know that part of it. He me- well, you, no. you remember when we were at that event back in 2007? He was on the yeah. teleprompter. Yeah. He wasn't saying anything practical and tactical. Yeah. He was just trying to seem like he was some sort of new age movement guru. Mm-hmm. He was even wearing this big white flowing shirt. Yeah, I do remember, remember that. that. Okay. So that was just basically somebody that hadn't... Go- now, fast forward to last year when the mm-hmm. pandemic hit. Mm-hmm. He was in front of the uh, British, whatever the heck it was, the form of Congress, begging for money to keep Virgin Airlines live. Did you know mm-hmm. this? I did. And and so he was, you know, essentially, obviously under a lot of pressure and stress. And this was maybe mid-year, June or July. And he went to the government begging for money to keep his airlines mm-hmm. afloat. Mm-hmm. And I remember somebody asked um, one of the, I don't know, parliament, I don't know what the hell it was, right? Yeah. <laughs> they asked, um, well, what I, why don't you, so Mr. Billionaire, what the hell? Why are you asking us for money? Mm-hmm. And he was, he was asking for, I think it was 300 million or something. Mm-hmm. And then he said, I don't actually have any money. All my money is tied up in, like he said, for example, and somebody even said, why don't you sell your island or something? Or I forget what it was. Yeah. And basically at that point, he admitted that essentially he's tall hat, no cattle. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's so the valuation of his assets, he said right now, I remember this too. He said, in essence, Virgin Airlines is worth nothing right now. See, so, I didn't, I didn't follow yeah. that strain. So, yeah. so you compare him to yeah. someone like Elon yeah, Musk? No, you're not, right. Not you're even right. orbiting the same universe, yeah. honestly. I mean, they're completely different. Mm-hmm. And and frankly, I like you know, I'm not going to talk about former presidents, but you know, same same idea, right? Mm-hmm. When you look at people who have really created wealth versus people that like to celebrate the perception that they've created wealth, a lot of people get become in love with their fame. It's the same thing that happens to realtors. Yeah, well, Branson might have made a good YouTuber back in the day. No, it is. <laughs> it, originally he was fantastic, yeah. but look where he made his money. He made his money with uh, Virgin Music Stores. Well, that mm-hmm. didn't last as soon as That's iTunes true. comes around. And w- did he evolve that? Did he get into digital music? No. Nope. And so what does he get into? Airlines? Yeah. Airlines. Huh. Okay. Especially during a pandemic. Oof. Yeah. Yeah. That wasn't a good idea. Not his fault, but still airlines. Sure. That seems weird. Now, uh, Virgin, uh, you know, Galactic. Maybe. And so now he's competing against uh, Elon Musk. He's competing against Jeff Bezos. And he thinks somehow he's going to be able to, mm-hmm. you know, those two gentlemen between the two of them, what the hell are they worth? $200 billion or something mm-hmm. insane? Maybe even more. And, and this Maybe guy, he's helping to sell it. And, and, and he's having to go to the parliament or whatever and beg for money. Yeah. I'm sorry. Not Virgin Galactic is not the horse I'd be betting on. Mm-hmm. You know, but anyway, so these are the types of interesting thoughts that you you really can start having when you start paying attention and you start being able to separate the wheat wheat from the chaff Mm -hmm. essentially. But yeah, so back to your original point, our original point, Mm -hmm. you grow from stress Yeah, and stop trying to avoid it. Absolutely. I hope we caused these guys a little bit of stress today. What do you think? (laughs) I don't know what they'll do with it. We'll see. Send us some emails and let us know what you thought about today's show. Uh oh, send them to Julie. No, yeah. actually, that's actually a good. That's a good segue to round the bend. Yeah. So I'm going to give all of you guys a little bit of stress. We talked about money. We talked about success. We talked about essentially stress. your stress. Well, here I'm going to intentionally put this in front of some of you guys. Ready? I'm going to be very direct. If you guys aren't taking a hard look at EXP Realty at this point, you are. Gonna, it's going to be your biggest regret. It, it, it honestly, it's going to be your single biggest regret. 
because EXP Realty right now is on one of these growth curves I've only read about. I remember studying these sort of things in in um, you know in college, right? Mm-hmm. And I remember when the t- uh, tech companies back in the early 90s when they started going public and you started seeing they talked about this hockey stick growth. But what people don't understand is those hockey sticks, they can last generations. Um, and the amount of people that are creating uh, unbelievable opportunity for themselves and their families through EXP's multiple streams of income is like nothing I've ever seen before. It is. And I think the only reason that you're not in pursuit of it is because you don't know the facts about it. Because you don't want to feel the stress of, of, of having, having new to thoughts, change. Having right. to change. And I think there's a little resistance because the people that are involved with the XP are so enthusiastic about it that that kind of freaks out people that don't know anything about it. And it, it makes them feel confronted in a way until you actually get the facts, which you cannot unsee. And until you know about people, and there's tons of them, tons of examples of agents that are doing basically the same volume that they did with their other company, but realize that their um, income stream, if you will, was coming only transactionally from their old company versus doing virtually the same business, if not possibly more, because you have probably more freedom than where you're coming from, with five different revenue streams. Let me tell it. In a, let me yeah. tell it in the story, right? Yes, that's so the best way to do it. On, on um, a clubhouse this past week, and mm-hmm. Julie and I's clubhouses, we do them every morning at um, eight a.m. It's not just Julie and eight a.m. Eastern. Eight a.m. Eastern, right? Uh, so it's a panel of folks. We usually try to have the same, uh, you know, moderators, panelists, but I, I like to mix it up for variety. And man, some of the people that come into the room are just awesome. There was a gentleman last week that. I, geez, he was incredible. But in any event, so and that these are not recorded. So it's FOMO in a real you're sense. You're there or you're not. You're there or you're not. So try to attend. It's called a real estate masterclass. Uh, and then it's, it, that's just, those are the keywords to look for. Or you can just search for Tim and Julie Harris and you'll find the masterclass that way. Uh, follow us and then um, and then basically hit the little, uh, the little uh, bell icon. And then every time we set one up, you'll be automatically reminded. But yeah, attend that. Um, so what was I ta- just talking about? Oh, I remember. So so I had someone that was uh, in the audience that came up on stage and we were talking about passive income last week on this masterclass. And I never really try to steer it towards EXP. Oftentimes it gets steered towards EXP because people are so thankful and grateful for it. Well, she came up on stage and she started talking about the fact, and she's 55, um, and she started talking about the fact that she had struggled with money her entire life. She was a single mom um, and, you know, she never, she always been fearful of just all the normal things that you know, cause people financial stress. She's fearful of make, not making her house payment, not being able to feed her kid, not being able to, just all the financial things. She never thought in her lifetime that she would have any sort of financial security because her whole life was basically transactional income. She'd been in the real estate business for basically her whole life. And, and making a decent living. This is not somebody that was just doing no. a deal here and there. Yeah. This but, is kind of common agent stuff. Right. right. She'd have successful years and then maybe she wouldn't keep her taxes back up. And then all the tax, tax, you know, zombie would come and knock on her door and then chase her around until she paid that off. And there would go her savings. And then there'd be an unexpected bill here, there. So her whole life was this constant feeling of stress to the point where it got, it was normalized. Um, and that goes back to my earlier point about how everyone assumes that being dependent on being stuck in the machine where you're never financially free, that just becomes normalized because everyone else around you is the same way. Well, she was that exact way too. Now, here's what EXP had done for her. Not only was she making more money because her commission split was left, less because EXP is, uh, you know, unbelievable. It's $16,000 cap. You know, some of you guys are, you don't even know what you're paying, but 
I had someone that was talking to about eXp on the phone, and he and his two assistants had paid to their broker the previous year $330,000 and didn't even know it because all the little clever ways the fees were disguised versus $16,000. I mean, that was not the, even comparable. That was the easiest sponsoring experience I think I'd ever had. They, yeah. You know, it's like, guess what? If you never do anything with revenue share and you just sell what you sold last year, I'm going to give you a raise of over $300,000. Yes. <laughs> Actually, I said, if I can show you how I can increase your in- income without any working any harder for it by $300,000. Which is real. Would you switch over to yeah. EXP in like the next five minutes? I said yes, and I showed him the math. And he was shocked because he'd never done the math. This was uh, last week. So anyway, um, she is then telling her story. And she doesn't have a lot of passive income from EXP. It's like 4500 bucks or something per month, right? So she's making 4500 bucks per month. May have been 35 may have been 52 I don't remember. Because here's what happened. She started telling this story how her whole life had been one form or another of struggle. Sound familiar, a lot of listeners? And now with her experience is having enough personal income that she has the financial security that she never had. And she went in to talk about how when she grew up, her parents, or actually she came from a single mom too, how her single mom too never had any money. So her entire life, since the day that she set her tiny little feet on planet Earth, has always been about financial insecurity, always been about scarcity. Always been about, you know, it's that's just how and she had come to believe that that was how it was. That going was to be. normal, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that had become normalized. All of her friends were that way, her family was that way. And now, what was amazing to the point where she started to cry is that she had enough money coming in that she was maybe a thousand or two away from having all of her bills personally covered every single month. And she could not believe the amount of stress that she'd been experiencing for 55 years that she was able to let go. That she was that she now can see in her rearview mirror because the revenue share she's making from EXP Realty. I, everyone on the everyone in the room basically knew. It. Some people started to feel emotional themselves. And this is without selling. I think a significant more. This is not because of increased volume. No, this no, no. Is because she was, of a different model. Well, she Let's she basically she had a. I think she only she's got she sponsored a handful of agents and they sponsored a handful of agents and yeah. But in in terms of her her transactions, she's basically running her real estate practice oh, yeah. basically the same way. Yeah, she hasn't yeah. increased her volume, what is that what you're saying? Yeah. Yeah, but she's she's created this passive income. But he, here's the thing that, I mean, I'm uh, happy and I'm a little bit angry and probably a little bit, I hate to say jealous, mm-hmm. but if I'd known about, if EXP and Realty had been around when you and I first got married and we started, yeah. you know, our North Star was to mm-hmm. essentially have enough passive income coming in off paid off rental properties yep. um, that we wouldn't have to work anymore. And we did accomplish it by the time we were 40 and 41, mm-hmm. okay? I won't say how many years that is ago because then you guys will know how old Julie is. Stop doing the math. I won't do that. Okay. And so, um, and we accomplished it. But it wasn't Shangri-La. No. Because rental properties are vacant. You know, you have to manage your managers, the whole thing. But it took us 20 years, basically more than that. Plus a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. To get to that point, we 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 could have gotten there faster if we'd sacrificed more, truthfully. But trust me when I tell you, listeners, we sacrificed a ton. We didn't go. We didn't have the lifestyle we could have had. We didn't have the houses we could have had. We didn't have the experiences we could have had because we were staying true to our North Star. We were sacrificing in pursuit of being rich where our money worked for us and we no longer work for our money. And we did it. And we became millionaires. Well, actually, we became multi-deca-millionaires, if you want to know the truth, from having sacrificed and lived that. Now, we had a couple of good cycles, uh, wind at our back. I mean, the greatest real estate uh, seller's uh, market in the history of humanity and more inflation depreciate, or inflation appreciation uh, over the last you know, 15 years yep. has definitely been <laughs> a good thing for us. 
But here's the here's the thing that I realize now. If we are getting into real estate now, and it doesn't matter what our age is, I would not be attracted to buying a single rental property nope. because of VXP's revenue share. Definitely not. Because it took the gal I was just talking about to mm-hmm. get to the point where she's making whatever it was, yep. five grand or whatever, uh, two years. I know, two years. Two years. So she basically in two years is able to create $60,000 roughly in passive income per year. You know, I want you guys to think about that. Just to put it in perspective, for you to have $5,000 a month passive income, you have to have, are you ready for this? You're going to have to own properties that cost between 100, own, no mortgage, properties that cost between one hundred and seventy-five dollars and $200,000 paid off. You're going to have to have five of them that are rented at all times paid off. So you're going to have to have roughly a million dollars or more, really, in paid off rental properties to make $5,000 net profit from your rent from those rental properties. I'm going to say it again because it's incredibly important you get it. I give you a million dollars. You go out and buy five rental properties in normal in the normal parts of the United States. You can buy five properties for 175 to 200 grand single family homes, and those will definitely produce a thousand dollars net. That's after taxes and carrying costs. Assuming you don't have big HOAs or association fees. Assuming you don't have roofs that need replaced. And you bought smart. You don't have a bunch of vacancy or crime. Exactly. You're going to make on average $1,000 net for every paid off rental property, paid off, no mortgage, that's worth between 175 and 200 grand. What's the probability of you saving a million dollars after tax? Listeners, I'll give you the probability, less than none. Because the amount of money you would have to earn, to, considering your personal bills, think how long it would take you to save a million dollars net to actually accomplish that. Yeah, never mind the hassle of actually finding properties like that, right. competing to get them, negotiating, doing the repairs, all of the surrounding stuff. You know, it, it is basically less than none. Now Especially we, in today's market, it's even harder. We've been buying for the last, we bought for the last, I mean, for 20 some years, yeah. right? So not all of ours cost that much. Um, a lot of them we bought originally were around 100 grand, 85 mm-hmm. grand. Sure. So we were buying back when we were in our 20s. Um, and still own those properties, uh, but nowadays those properties are worth over two hundred thousand. Couple of the properties, most from over three, which is insane. It's, it's just insane. insane. Yeah. But if you, if I bought for you know, Julie and I bought for a cash a three hundred thousand dollar property in one of our hunting grounds in Central Ohio, I promise you right now that damn thing's not going to net us any more than a thousand dollars a month. No, because the, the rents don't keep up with the you know uh, increase in price. Right. So again, interesting. And also, by the way, I have two chimney repairs this week. So there's that. The ongoing. You know, drama of owning property. Well, okay. Yeah, with the XP, you know. You yeah, we have, have properties in Texas too. Wait until the thaw. Ugh, Think I of know. all the properties problems we're gonna have with those Frozen properties because they're fro- exactly. I know it's bad. So, so the moral of the story here is: is we're giving you the best suggestion. Call call it advice if you'd like. We possibly can. If you are not involved in EXP, okay, if your goal is to be free where your money works for you, you no longer have to work for your money. If your goal is to be like this gal I was just describing to you that you can finally get out of the boiler room for life, then you have not very many choices, truthfully. I mean, maybe you've got a, you know, a rich relative that's going to kick the bucket. Well, there's that. Good luck. Right. Hopefully, yeah. you're, you know, you're going to get what you think you're going to get. I think that's not more, predictable or duplicate. <laughs> that's more hopium than it is anything else. Uh, but you're going to have to, you know, buy investment properties or you're going to have to figure something else out. Passive income is the, the best source of passive income I've ever come across are dividend paying stocks. Again, you have to have millions of dollars in dividend paying stocks in order to live off the cash flow. Um, and if you don't know what that is, Google it. Not going to be a source that any of you are going to be able to count on this life in this lifetime. It is a spoke, but it can't be the source. 
EXP's revenue share model, especially when you look at where this company is in, in, in its expansion mode, is extraordinary. And if you're not taking it seriously, I, this is the thing that you guys have been looking for. I'm 100% confident that this is the thing. Is well, it a, Dude, we would not be involved in it if that weren't the case. We do you, tend to study. Yes, I called you dude. Yeah, you did. But call me but dude. seriously, I mean, I, wouldn't you say at this point because we're well past what is EXP? Okay. Yeah. At this point, well, if, we're, and, and except people, everyone knows who EXP, what EXP that's is what I'm now, right? Okay. Versus two years ago. So like two years ago, it could be forgiven because you were still you know investigatory state and it wasn't really a thing. Well, she means you listeners, not me. I mean, yeah. and Julie. So when I was talking to Julie and I were talking to people two years ago, that was the number one question: What's EXP? Yeah, no more. Everybody no more. knows now, and everyone now. Should. Most people want to join. Yes. So really, wouldn't you say at this point, the only reason you wouldn't is simply because you don't know enough about it? Yeah. Lack of exposure. Yeah. Right. Or, but it, in just really drilling down, mm-hmm. the biggest mistake people make, totally self-serving what I'm about to say, but totally true, is they choose the wrong, the wrong sponsor. sponsor. Yep. Yeah. They choose somebody that's not going to shepherd them through the whole process. And they, the eight, then you join, you don't have a uh, sponsor that's sponsoring. If you don't have a sponsor that's actually sponsoring people... You have somebody that like you're going to be one of their own their handful of people they've sponsored. Why would you choose that person to sponsor you? You want to choose somebody. Now they might be great and they might be on the ascent. They might be on their way. I'm not you know bad mouthing them. I'm just saying you've got to be really really careful that you're going to choose a sponsor that's sponsoring um, or a group of people. You know just choose wisely guys. that are supportive of you. Yeah, because you're going to get you're going to start on this this journey hoping to build revenue share, and you're not going to have been surrounded by the people that are going to you know help you create that the quickest. So ultimately, if you're serious about being financially free, the model of VXP Realty is like nothing we've ever seen before. Now there might be opportunities like this amongst really really wealthy people, but um, that were born with it. But that ain't any of us, is it? So this is, in my opinion, EXP is the last best business opportunity, not the last business opportunity, but the last best business opportunity that pretty much every one of you listening will ever have, uh, Julie and I as well. So do the smart thing and at least take it seriously. I would love to talk with you about EXP Realty. I would love for you to consider us as your sponsor at EXP Realty. Um, It would be our honor to be um, your shepherd down the path. And so all you've got to do is text me directly at 512-758-0206, 512-758-0206. And I'll get you started on the journey. At the very least, I'll answer some of your questions. And if you're already far down the road with somebody else about them being your sponsor, um, you know, have the conversation with them and have them sponsor you. I'm not trying to induce you away from somebody sure. else. I'm just asking you to take the opportunity seriously, move faster, and by all means, take it seriously because this is what many of you have been looking for, most of you have been hoping for. That's right. So take action. You know, don't just, you know, go on with your day and do what you've always done and say that was a nice little session that was entertaining. Our aim is to move you forward in life faster and to be motivational, hopefully inspirational, educational, and show you a path forward that maybe is faster than what you might have done on your own. You know, we talk all the time, would would it have been awesome if we had some mentors along the way, certainly. But, you know, some of the opportunities you guys have now are just so outrageously better that not taking action on it really is irresponsible. I really, I truly feel that way. We didn't have anybody like us. No. We didn't. We, and we looked for somebody like us too. We did all kinds of looking to find somebody else, like somebody like us, to sponsor, to basically yeah. mentor us. Back when there were shadow days and shadow like days, that, yeah. and we listened to different gurus and you know self-proclaimed experts. And I, I think actually that, in pursuit of some of these, uh, you know, expert guru types, we learned basically that most experts and gurus are fake. 
Yeah, so, so it, it helps it wasn't, us to try to be as authentic as possible. Right, so it wasn't for nothing. Yeah. Oh, you said try. Oh, I shouldn't have said that. To be as authentic as possible. That's right. Nice catch. <laughs> That's right. So guys, do something with this. Don't be passive about it. Be passionate about it. That's better. Yeah, that is the bottom line. Be passionate about, if you want to know what to be passionate about, be passionate about your potential. Be passionate about your future. Be passionate about what you can do for yourself, your family, your community. Be passionate about what can come on the other side of no longer ever having to think about money anymore. Be passionate what it actually would feel like to wake up every single money, uh, every single morning not worrying about money, knowing how all the, you know, the bills were paid. Where would your focus go? And here, don't be scared of the fact that you don't have an answer to that question. If you're anything like Julie and I, which I know pretty much all of you are, that you don't come from rich backgrounds. You don't know what comes on the other side of the struggle. But I promise you, when you get to the other side of the struggle, assuming you pursue the idea of being rich where your money works for you, you no longer work for your money, your mind will happily find something to do. Yes. It'll be more constructive. And if you know you want to go back to more creative indulgences that are not necessarily um, you know, in servitude of earning money, well, you have more time for those activities. But chances are what you're going to discover is once you have passed of income, your passion is going to gravitate towards how to be of service to more people faster at a higher level. And then you're going to then by essentially a side stream benefit, actually create more wealth because you're going to love the feeling of being um, independently wealthy yourself. And you're going to help other people want to accomplish that same goal. That's where most of you will gravitate towards. And that's where you're supposed to gravitate to. At least that's my belief. Yeah. Well, so I think you're reminding them that the things that you do in your more financially free future could even be things that you haven't thought about right now because you're not allowing yourself to think about it because your brain is full of thinking about struggle. It's so full of struggle and fear, really. And then trying to, you know, nerf yourself up. But once you've essentially moved past that, what's on the other side of that, the sense of freedom, it is freedom too, guys. Let's not, you know, mix words here. Being financially free, no longer being dependent on uh, a political party or a job or uh, an economic system or interest rates. You know, here's, I'll just in this one thought. What wouldn't in your life change? What wouldn't in your life, what would in your life be the same if you are financially independent, financially free? Would you vote for the same person? Would you think the same thoughts? Would you live in the same town? You're all of a sudden, you've got enough money coming in that you never have to worry about money again. What wouldn't change? I bet you that every single one of you would get in better shape if you no longer had to worry about money. I bet you every single one of you would start being a hell of a lot more gratuitous and demonstrative of your appreciation for other people. Every single one of you would become better humans because you no longer had to live in that constant state of fear, that constant state of dread. You know, when you can move from doing what you don't want to do when you don't want to do it at the highest level, and, and all of you have to stay in that mode 90% of your time, you never can get completely out of that mode. But when you move into doing what you want to do when you want to do it at the highest level, when you can do that 90% of the time, and you can do the doing what you don't want to do when you don't want to do it at the highest level only 10% of the time, that's the that's the magical part of uh, essentially, that's the payoff. That's what you're working towards. Any thoughts on that? Let's go to the beach. Speaking of which. Yeah, let's go to the beach. Amen. <laughs> That's my thought. Where's, is the house munchkin bug- bothering you again? I don't know. She's strangely quiet. You know what's hilarious? Is she start, did I tell you she's starting to text me on your phone? You know I know. That. I know. And she sends me emojis and stuff. Yeah. She says it's time to text data. Yeah. You know how strange it is to get a text from a, your seven-year-old daughter? I do. Who, who, who just like, you, it seems like yesterday she didn't even know how to talk. I know. And it's now she's texting strange. me. But you know what? It's bringing it back to the AI. Some of her texts are that much more accurate because she's learning to spell because it defaults to the word she's trying to spell. 
I want, it's not interesting. It is helping people learn how to spell better. It's I'm learning how to. Yeah. Uh, I think she definitely reads better because of the default that it's taught her. Yeah. It's interesting. It is interesting, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so maybe if we're lucky, AI will replace us. Of course, here's the thing. How do you know it hasn't? This is AI. <laughs> Signing off. Brought to you by Tim and Julie, artificial intelligence. Exactly. <laughs> Tim and Julie have been at the beach for the last hour. <laughs> That's right. I'm going to go check on them. <laughs> I'm going to go check on them. You guys have a fantastic day. Remember, not our normal show. So if you thought we were crazy today, don't write us off. Real Estate Coaching Back Radio. Back to normal tomorrow. <laughs> real Estate Coaching Radio is the number one listened to daily podcast for real estate uh, professionals in at least the United States and maybe the world. We can't be for sure about that one, but the United States we are. So thank you to all of you uh, for helping us accomplish that goal and uh, keep that true. And please do remember, get our book, Harris Rules. It's going to be the North Star that you guys have all been searching for. I do not care if you've been in the business a million years. It's especially relevant to you because you need to remove all of the, essentially the old, outdated, bad software that's floating around your head that's causing you um, stress, It's uh, bad stress. It's causing you, frankly, to be broke. Uh, causing you to struggle and you don't even really know it because you've normalized it. So do read our book. I think it'll give you a lot of clarity. It's called Harris Rules. In the meantime, um, for those of you who are ready to move forward with VXP and you're looking for the right sponsor, it would be an honor to be your sponsor. Please feel free to text me at 512-758-0206. 512-758-0206. In the meantime, you guys have a fantastic day and we'll talk to you on the show tomorrow. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.